Hey everyone, before we get to today's story, we wanted to invite you to our Patreon page. If you are unfamiliar with Patreon, it is a service that allows you to support our work. If you love our podcast and love these stories and want more of them, we sure could use your donations. We've set up three donation tiers, $2, $3, and $5, each with different rewards. You will be billed every time we release a new episode, and your donations will go toward helping us make more episodes. Things like transcription services, production help, that kind of thing. We love telling your stories, and we know that there are so many stories we just haven't been able to get to because of our working pace. If you find them worth your time, we hope you'll consider becoming our patrons. You can go to our website, cocoonstories.com, to find a link to our Patreon page, or you can go straight to Patreon, patreon.com slash cocoonstories. Thanks. And now, on with the show. Hi everyone, I'm Lizzie Heiselt. And I'm Valerie Best. This is Cocoon, Stories of Gestation, where we talk about what you've become through life's major changes. We often talk about times and seasons in our lives as being like a roller coaster. The ups and downs, sudden drops, and sharp turns. We use the analogy to talk about the emotions of a mercurial toddler, as well as the normal cycles of everyday life. It's a fitting metaphor in many scenarios, and one I would be tempted to use to introduce this particular story, except that it doesn't go far enough. The drops are too steep, the curves are too sharp for the analogy to hold up. A normal life would fall apart, and yet, somehow this life did not. Physically, miracles occurred. Emotionally, there was support in all the right places. And the car arrived back in the station. But it seems like it's only a matter of time before it leaves again. And the track and the destination are just as uncertain as it was through the wild ride that has already passed. But instead of spending time on analogies, let's meet the woman who survived the ride. So I'm Christy Carpenter. I was born and raised in Bountiful, Utah, and I lived elsewhere. I moved out of the state for a while and then have you know, made my way back to Bountiful, and that's where I'm at right now. And I am married to Brant Carpenter, and we met here in Utah at, through our church, and we have two little boys. Cameron is, will be five next month, and James will be two at the end of May. So they're getting big and they keep life very interesting. And then I um, am a CPA. I went to BYU, got my master's of accounting there and got my CPA license and been working in the accounting field kind of ever since. I'm not currently working right now. Since James was born, I've just taken a break from work, but I'll probably start back up soon. Since James was born. That's our end. That's where the ride begins. Actually, it was a week or two before he was born that things started happening. So it all kind of started when I was almost 32 weeks pregnant with James. And we were supposed to go on a vacation with my parents. We were just going to go up to their cabin. And uh, we were going to leave like on Monday, that, that Monday. And my mom called me and she's like... I- I just don't feel good about you about going up there. And I was like, uh, well, I know why. Because I've kind of been having slight contractions today that don't really feel like Braxton Hicks. Like they feel a little bit more. I'm like, I just 
it's probably not a good idea if we go. So she told me, you know, just relax, just sit down, drink a lot of water, and take it easy for the rest of the night. So I did, and and that middle of the night, I woke up, and I was just having these contractions. Christy had been induced with Cameron, so she wasn't completely confident that she knew what labor contractions really felt like. But after timing them for a while and realizing they were getting closer together, she decided she needed to be checked out. She finally woke up her husband, and they decided to go to the hospital. They dropped Cameron off at her parents' house, and... As I was walking in, I was just like, this this can't be happening. Like, we don't have a bag packed. Like, we walked in with nothing. And I was just like, I, I didn't get my pedicure done. Like, I can't be going to labor. You know, I'm, we're not ready for this. And um, so we went in, and all, you know, the nurses hooked me up and everything, and like, you're definitely having strong contractions. This isn't Braxton Hicks. Like, these are real labor contractions. So we're going to do everything that we can to stop this from happening. I got this test. It's called the fibro, wait, fetal fibronectin test. And they, they test you, and it, it's supposed to tell you, like, it's 99.8% accurate that it predicts if you won't go into labor for two weeks. And it came back negative, so there was a 0.01% chance I would go into labor in the next two weeks. And so they're like, we don't know why you're in labor. All the blood tests were normal. Every test they took was normal. Nothing was indicating why I was in labor. So they prepared us for the worst, that they couldn't stop it. And I got steroid shot, like the steroid injections to help with, with develop the baby's lungs. And I did the, oh, now I can't even think of the medicine, a medicine to help with. Um, Is it like magnesium? The magnesium, yes. So I got the magnesium done to help prevent any fluid on the brain and to prevent damage there. I can just tell you that was one of the worst things I've been through. Like it just destroyed my body. I had I could not get out of bed. I just laid there in so much pain and just miserable and I was so weak. I like had to be helped to go to the bathroom and at one point I'm like I I just can't even get out of bed and so it was it was awful. But we did that after being monitored for 24 hours. The contractions had stopped, so they felt confident in releasing me. And he said, you know, we, you can go home. I'm like, so do I need to be on bed rest? I'm like, no. Like, you shouldn't be having this baby for two weeks. Like, we're very confident that you're fine to resume normal activity. You know, maybe take it easy for a couple of days, but after that year, well, you know, you can go back to work. Just resume activity. Just resuming activity was, of course, easier said than done. Christy called into work and told them she was taking the week off. The week went smoothly until Saturday, when her contractions started up again. It was the exact same thing as the week before. They dropped Cameron off and went to the hospital, this time with a bag packed, assuming they wouldn't get sent home again. We got checked in, got all hooked up, and again took the fetal fibronectin test, came back negative, should not be going to labor for two weeks. Every test came back normal that I should not be in labor. There's no reason why I should be doing this. But this time they couldn't stop the contractions. So I 
sat in the bed all day, and that night they finally were like, we need you to sleep, so let's give you an epidural and so you can sleep. So I got my epidural and slept that night. And they said, you know, if in the morning, if you haven't progressed at all, then we'll take the epidural out so that, you know, you don't have all the all that medicine flowing through you all the time. So they checked me in the morning, and I was dilated to a four. And so it was not the news we wanted. We were hoping that I hadn't progressed at all. So they prepared me you know, for a... So I had a C-section with Cameron. But because um, James was so early, they were like, well, let's try for a VBAC. So we, I signed all the paperwork to do the VBAC, and that was what we were going to do. And we got all prepared for that and just kind of waiting our time. And suddenly the OB comes in. She tells me, she's like, we've been monitoring the baby's heart rate, and it is just starting to just go crazy. It's He's not loving it in there. He needs to come out right now. Within half an hour, Christy's baby was born. Instead of a tiny three or four pound baby they were expecting at 33 weeks gestation, he was five pounds, 15 ounces, with a lot of red hair. It felt like a bit of a miracle to have such a well-developed baby so many weeks early. But before the surgery was complete, there was another surprise. This one, not so great. As they were putting me all back together, they, the doctor noticed that I had a very large cyst on my ovary. She asked if it had been bothering me. Like, no, I, I, I didn't notice anything. You know, I I'm, I'm, was in my third trimester, so of course I had lots of pains and lots of uncomfortableness, so nothing out of the ordinary. But it was so big, in fact, that she had Brant lean over the curtain so that he could actually see. Valerie and I were a little confused by this. Did Brandt have any medical training? Why would he be interested? It turns out the doctor was just that shocked. She just had to show someone. It was that big, the size of a fist, in fact. Just 13 weeks before, when Christy had her 20-week anatomy scan, they had checked her ovaries and they were normal, the size of an almond, as they are supposed to be. But anyway, the doctor determined that with all the extra blood from the pregnancy, it was too dangerous to remove it right then. She took a biopsy and had planned to sew Christy back up, let her recover for a few weeks, and then go in and remove the cyst. But the cyst did not cooperate. So they told me that they didn't want to remove the whole cyst at the time because of all the extra blood from being pregnant. It was too dangerous dangerous that I could risk you know, bleeding out. So they just took a biopsy, and she was trying to stitch me back up after the biopsy, and it just kept tearing, and it wouldn't, she couldn't get it to stitch. So she's like, I'm sorry, you know, we have to risk it. I'm going to have to take out this whole cyst right now. I'm like, okay, fine, do it. So she did, and um, they were able to save like 90% of my ovary. So we were just happy. Like, we have this miracle baby. He is so much more developed than we thought he would be. And thankfully, he came via C-section because they were able to find this cyst before it burst. And, you know, they were able to take care of it. But that was kind of the end of the story. Well, not really the end of the story, as I'm sure you've guessed. It was really just the beginning. 
Almost like that first big fall on a roller coaster. You've made it past the most dramatic part, right? And if you made it past that part, the rest will be easy. But it's hard to anticipate how the rest of the track will play out, especially if you think the drama is behind you. It was actually a few days later, as Christy and Brant were debating baby names and getting ready for Christy to be discharged, that they hit that first sharp whiplash-inducing turn. So we, um, Brant and I, had a really hard time deciding on names. So we, we waited a couple of days to name James after he was born, and then we still could not figure out a middle name for him. And we, we were discussing that on the day that I was being discharged from the hospital. So it's been four days. We were sitting in the hospital room trying to fill out the paperwork and discussing middle names. And I'm like, I just, I need a break. I'm going to go take a shower. So I took a shower. And while I'm in there, I hear the phone ring and Brant answers it. And I can, like his side of the conversation, I just remember thinking, Something's not right. Like, I think that that's my doctor calling what's going on. And I just felt like something was not right. So I hurried out, and Brent was like, well, so that was um, Dr. Servas, my OB. And she has the results from the biopsy. I'm like, okay, what were they? He's was like, well, she'll call back in like five minutes because she wants to talk to you. I, my heart sunk. I was just like, first off, why is she personally calling me? And why isn't a nurse just calling and being like, hey, I just wanted to let you know everything's clear. You're fine. You know, I just, I immediately knew something was wrong. And Brant did too. So we kind of just sat there and just like stared at the phone for five minutes, not really talking or we didn't want to acknowledge what we knew what was coming. She calls back and she tells me, you know, I was like, I'm just so sorry to tell you, but the biopsy came back as cancerous. Um, you have ovarian cancer. She's like, I have been in contact with the top ovarian cancer specialist, and he is in Salt Lake. They're going to be calling you. Everything's kind of in motion already. And so, you know, we're going we're gonna to fight this together. And I, I mean, we just didn't even know what to do. And so we just, after that phone call, we just sat there and in my hospital room and just cried. And the nurse came in and I'm like, I, I'm sorry, I haven't filled out these paperwork, you know, discharge papers. She's like, don't worry about the discharge paperwork. She's like, we just heard what happened, you know, the news. We know where to find you. Just don't worry about it today. The ovarian specialist did call, and they set up a meeting for six weeks later, when Christy would be better recovered from childbirth and surgery. And with things set in motion, Christy and Brant realized they had to tell their parents what was happening. A little background here. James was a big baby for a preemie, but that doesn't mean he didn't have preemie problems, like forgetting how to breathe. It can be really scary to have a newborn in the NICU turn blue while you were holding him, as Christy's mom found out. She was so shaken by her experience that she vowed not to hold him until he was out of that scary phase. And when Christy texted her to tell her that they needed to talk, her mind went straight back to that moment. So, you know, we drove up to my parents' house, and as we, they opened the door, and both my mom and dad were just right at the door. They opened up, they're like, are you okay? And I just started crying. 
and my mom just started bawling. My dad just starts bawling. And finally, my mom gets out the word James, and she's just like, James? And I'm like, no, 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 James is fine. Like, it's not James, he's fine, he's the same, like, nothing's wrong. And she, both my parents had thought that James had died or had gone, like, gotten really bad. Like, they had spent the last hour or so thinking the worst thing had happened to our new little baby. And um, so we had to calm them down from that. And as they were calming down, I'm like, it's me. Like, I'm the one with the bad news. And I'm like, I have cancer. That, you know, that cyst in my ovary, it wasn't a cyst. It, It was a tumor and it came back as cancerous. See, whiplash, another sudden drop. Christy had been told there was more testing that needed to happen on her biopsy and that she would know more in a couple of weeks. And in the meantime, it was her parents' 50th wedding anniversary and her whole family, her parents and her five siblings and their spouses and families, were headed to California for a celebratory trip. Christy and Brandt had been planning to go too, but obviously with James's unexpected arrival, plans changed. And then there was another development. Over the next couple of days, Christy couldn't lie down without having a coughing fit. It was really painful for someone who just had a cesarean birth and was nursing an incision. She consulted Google, which told her that maybe she had a clot in her lung, but she didn't feel comfortable taking a Google diagnosis to the ER, so she let it be and propped herself up so she wouldn't have to lie down. That worked for a few days, and then on a Sunday afternoon when she was visiting James, she had another coughing attack and decided that maybe she should call her OB and ask her about it. So I called her. And she's like, "Mm, you need to go to the emergency room. It sounds like you have a blood clot. She's like, oh, this is not what I need right now. I don't need to deal with a blood clot on top of everything else. So I call Brandt. I'm like, I need to go to the emergency room. Come down as soon as you can. So he rushed down. We walked down to the emergency room, got checked in, got blood work done, got a CT scan done. You know, we just sat and we waited for hours and hours. And the doctor, you know, he came in and he would—he was talking to us and she's like, I'm sure everything's fine. Like the worst case scenario would be a blood clot, but you probably don't have like you're healthy. Besides having cancer, you're healthy <laughs> and, you know, relatively. And so, you know, we we're just kind of sitting there waiting. Well, he finally comes in after few hours and he shuts the glass doors on in our little room and the whole time every time he talked to us the doors had just been open you know so we knew that we were about to get some more bad news if he were if he was closing those and he sat down and and he's just like I I hate this I hate that I'm telling you this the good news is you don't have a blood clot like, but you, you know, our scans show that you have lesions or um, cancer in your lungs, in your sternum, and in your spine. So I want you to know that this is one of the hardest things I've had to ever tell a patient. He's like, I will be going to the bar right after this and just drinking myself, you know, drinking the rest of the night because he's like, this is so hard for me to tell you this. 
Because it was in her lungs, Christy was admitted to the hospital under the pretense that she had pneumonia. It was the quickest way to get her in there. And with that, abruptly, her coughing fits and difficulty breathing stopped. And we're, you know, we're very religious, and I could just see God's hand in that. And we knew from that, the split second that happened, that the only reason I was having that difficulty breathing was to get me back into the hospital so they could find the cancer and that I didn't have to wait any longer. So Christy had been admitted. She knows she has cancer. She knows it is spread throughout her body. The question on everyone's mind at this point is, what is the prognosis? Is it treatable? How long do people with this type of cancer typically live? The answer to these questions took their time in coming. Initially, Christy was given a timeline of five to 10 years, which seemed impossibly short to her and her family despite the fact that the doctors who gave the prognosis presented it as good news. So when she came in, you know, she told me, she's like, the good news is that you have this type of cancer, it's a carcinoid cancer, and if it was any other type of cancer, she's like, I would be sending you home right now to just live out your life as much as you could because you would have a couple of months and there wouldn't be much we could do. But luckily this type of cancer is a little bit slower and you know, we have you know we have some things that we can do to fight it. It's rare, but we can you know, there are some things and it is slow, so you know, you have about five to ten years to live. And I I was like that's the good news? Like, seriously, you're telling me the good news is that I have five years to be with my family. Like, I'm only going to know this little boy that I just gave birth to a week ago. I'm only going to know him for five years. It just made me just immediately think about all the things I was going to miss out in my little boy's life. Like, Cameron would be eight, you know, when, when I died and James would be five and I'm like, that's just not fair to them. It's not fair to me. You know, we're just like, how, how could I be taken away from them at such a young age? It just was not fair. And I couldn't figure it out. We just didn't even know, you know, what to do. So we called, you know, our parents and let them know. And I, I had to call my my mom and dad as they're in California, and I told them the news and and everything. We held off on the prognosis of the five to ten years, and we just told them, you know, I have stage four cancer, and it's a lot more serious, and it doesn't look good. And immediately they're just like, okay, hey, we're, we're on the next flight home. And I'm like, okay. Because <laughs> I'm like, I need my mom and dad. They'd, you know, they'd only, I don't know if they'd even been in California for a full 24 hours. And I'm just, I just needed them. So my parents came back and so they came, they were there the next day. And... You know, that's when we met the oncologist, and we, I had told my parents that they had given me five, ten years. And the oncologist came in, and my, my dad was just like, 
Um, Christy tells us that she has, like, five, ten years. Please, like, I don't think that that's right. Like, what do you think? He's like, unfortunately, that's uh, looking on the bright side. Is that, you know? He's like, five years is probably is what we're looking at, probably. He's like, ten, maybe, but probably not. And my dad was not happy with that answer. And he, you know, he did not like hearing that. And I'd at least had a few hours to, not a full day, but a few hours to get used to it. So I kind of knew. But then um, my in-laws came. And they had been keeping Cameron. So it was the first time I had seen Cameron since getting this prognosis of five to ten years. And as he walked in, like, it just, reality hit so hard then. But I was just going to miss this little boy so much. And Cameron is such a mama's boy. He doesn't let Brant do much for him. He never has. And his world kind of revolves around me. And... And it just broke my heart that I would be ripped away from him. And as, um, you know, he came in and he just, he comes, climbs from the bed. And I just hugged him and cried and cried. And, and then Brent kind of started playing with him and everything. And I was just so grateful I had Brent there. And my love for Brent grew so much just seeing him be with Cameron and I knew that my boys would be in good hands with Brant and that I really didn't have to worry because he's such an amazing dad and he would love these boys and I was just so grateful for that. Finding things to be grateful for proved to be a key strategy for Christy in the coming weeks and months and knowing her boys had a good dad who would love them and care for them when she was gone was top of the list. Especially when, a week later, Christy met with another oncologist to discuss the final biopsy report and find out more about what they were dealing with. Christy brought a support team, including her brother, who was a doctor, to help ask the right questions and parse out any medical terms. But what the oncologist told them was not at all what they were expecting. Because hadn't they already had the rug pulled out from under them a couple of times? So we sat down with Dr. Ormsby, uh, my oncologist, and he was just like, I, I hate this. He's like, I, I hate that I have to tell you this, but it's like they're, it's like the type of cancer that you have, it's called neuroendocrine carcinoma. It's very rare. Less than 2% of cancers out there are this type. And he's like, but within that little umbrella, there are two types of this cancer. There's a high grade and a low grade. Like the majority of these cancers are low grade. And that's what we assumed it was. And that's what we gave you the five to 10 years is assuming it was the low grade. Like, unfortunately, the final biopsy report came back and I have the high grade. And, you know, it's more aggressive and they, there's, it's even more rare, so there's not a whole lot out there for treatment. But they would try. The doctor said they can sometimes get rid of the cancer after a few rounds of chemotherapy, and that she could become cancer-free. 
but that typically the cancer then comes back and it is more aggressive and it doesn't respond well to chemo. So I'm like, okay, so what, how much time are you giving me? I'm like, let's just get down to it. You know, how much time? He's like, well, seeing as how advanced this is and, um, how aggressive it's acting. He's like, I, it's like, you probably have to 10 to 12 months before this cancer takes your life. You know, we, we thought hearing the 10 to or five to 10 years was really hard. Knowing that I had a year or less to live. I mean, that it destroyed me. It broke me. And you know, we kept hearing, you know, miracles happen. Things happen. Maybe, maybe I can be one of the miracles and I can, I won't be one of the statistics. And, you know, so we kept a hold of that. Um, but in the back of my mind, I, I wanted to believe it, but I really didn't think it was possible. We left the doctor's office, and as we were coming out of the, the medical building, my dad walks through the doors. And so we're in the big foyer, and he just walks up, and he's like, so what What do you say? And I couldn't even talk. And I just hugged him and cried and cried. And from there, things were kind of a blur for Christy. Things started happening all around her. Fundraisers and a GoFundMe account people donating money and telling Christy and Brand it didn't have to be used for medical bills. For heaven's sakes, go have some fun while you can. Christy said people came out of the woodwork those first few days after a word of her diagnosis got around. She decided that if this really were her last year on Earth, she did want to live it up as much as she could, and she and Brand started to plan trips and activities that they hoped would make the best of a sad time. I told him, like, if this is truly my last year, I don't want my family to look back on it and think that year sucked like that was the worst year of our lives it was horrible I'm like I want them to look back and be like man that was an awesome year yeah it was hard and we went through a lot like that's just an inevitable thing that would happen I'm like I want it to be a happy thing like I want I want Cameron to look back and remember me not as just sick and dying I wanted him to be able to remember some fun fun things and good times that's what we set out doing and we planned some trips that we would do and I wasn't 100% sure I would actually make it to all the trips but we planned them and um, just had faith that things would would work out. But amidst the dreaming and hoping, there were practicalities as well, which had a way of bringing them down to earth. Christy had her chemo port put in and her first round of chemo. Actually, it happened to be on the day that James was discharged from the NICU. With everything else happening, they asked the hospital to keep James a couple more days so Christy could get through that first treatment before having to mother a newborn more intensively. They called me that day I started chemo and they're like, just so you know, you can come pick up James. And I'm like, uh, can you keep him 
two more days because I would be on chemo. I would do chemo treatments for three days and then I'd be off for 21 days and then I'd start the round again. So I'm like, I just let me get through my first treatment. So I'm like, keep him two more days and then we'll come get him. So the last, it was right after my last treatment, we went straight to the hospital and picked up James. So I was new mom. Luckily, Brant was amazing and he took like all the night shifts, took most of the day shifts too, <laughs> so that I could get as much rest of it that I could get and that I needed. We had had James home for maybe a week when Cameron decided that that was a good time to be potty trained and that he did not want to wear diapers anymore because baby James wears diapers and baby wears diapers and he doesn't want to be a baby anymore. So I'm like, okay, let's do this. (laughs) Chemo, brand new baby, potty training. (laughs) This is awesome. (laughs) But I mean, it shows you, you know, life goes on and you can't stop it. Like you can't stop your kids from growing up just because you're going through this. Like life goes on, life happens. You still have to be a mom. And so luckily he was super easy to potty train and it was a breeze compared to the horror stories I had heard and planned on. Which is not to say things were easy. On top of being so sick that she stashed throw-up bags all over her house, Christy became depressed and could hardly bring herself to get out of bed. She got on antidepressants and started seeing a therapist, which helped her mental and emotional health a lot. But it didn't do much for her physical health, and it seemed neither did the chemo. After three rounds, the tumors were just as they had been, if not slightly bigger. The chemo just made me really weak and tired. And after three rounds, I just told Brent, I'm like, I can't do this anymore. It's not worth it. I want to be able to live my life and this chemo is not letting me. Like, I just can't do anything. I'm just too sick. Like, I just can't do it. This isn't worth it just to keep the cancer stable. Like, it's just not worth it in my mind. So we decided that we'd go off of it. And then lots of more problems (laughs) happened. There, a tumor blocked off the my common bile duct, so my gallbladder started filling up with bile, and it became, like, it grew to the size of a football. It was huge. My liver was very swollen from all the cancer in it. That's where most of the cancer was, and so the right side of my abdomen was just, it was so big, and I would lay flat, and it looked like I was pregnant on the right side of my body just I had this big lump and my your liver is supposed to be like right below your rib cage mine was almost touching my hip bone it was very big very enlarged and um, lots and lots of pain as you can imagine this was not a terribly encouraging time in Christy's life but the physical pain and lack of progress was just the most visible part of the struggle there were lots of ripples emanating from the cancer out into Christy's family We'll start with baby James. Something that I've actually just realized looking back as I'm, you know, writing my story and thinking about more at the beginning of what I was going through, something I realized that I haven't shared with anyone before. When 
I am about to have a change where I'm like moving somewhere or like I when I graduated high school when I graduated college I start to distance myself from those around me that I know I'm going to be leaving you know to ease that pain ease that break and that separation that I know is coming up and I've known this about me for a while but recently I realized that I I do not allow myself to bond with James when he was born because subconsciously I was doing it to ease the pain. I didn't want to have him be so reliant on me and to to need me so much that when I was gone, it would be that much harder on him and harder on Brant and harder on Cameron and harder on everyone. So not only like physically, I wasn't able to take care of him very much. I let my parents do a lot of that and Brant do a lot of it and my siblings do a lot of it, but emotionally as well. And I, I loved that baby. I loved baby James so much and I would do anything for him, but it was a different love than what I had for Cameron because I'd already, I already had that bond and I'd had that bond for three years with Cameron and I didn't really allow myself to bond with James. So I I would have these friends that would tell me, you know, I haven't left my baby overnight ever. And they're like over a year old. And I'm like, I leave James all the time and it's fine. It's glorious. You know, like it, I didn't have that like, oh my gosh, I don't have my baby with me. I don't want to say I regret it because I needed, I needed to focus on myself. I needed to focus on healing and fighting and my health, but I know I missed out on, on some of that bonding and I've made up for it. And he is, he is my heart. I, I love him so much and that bond is definitely there now but looking back I can definitely see that I did not have that bond and it was because of that prognosis which totally makes sense people do this all the time keep themselves from getting too close to people they know they are going to be leaving it's easier when you don't know them yet but when you've already had time when you've thrown yourself into a relationship Figuring out how to extricate yourself from it can be difficult, painful, even excruciating. Christy's prognosis obviously had a big impact on her relationships with Brandt and Cameron and how she imagined their future playing out. I would have conversations with Brandt about, about it, and we were done having kids after after James, and you know, it was planned to take a more permanent solution and we were planning on that and we got the my diagnosis and I told Brant you're not taking any permanent measures, like you're not doing anything. Because I'm like 
you're gonna get married again. And he would, he'd get so mad when I would talk about it, but I'm like, no, like, I want you to get married. Like, you're supposed to get married. Again, like, you're not supposed to be here on this earth by yourself. And I was very adamant about it. And I'm like, most likely the person that you marry is going to be young and is going to want her own family. And I want you to be able to have that family with your new wife. It was so hard to think about having someone else raise my boys. But reality was that whoever Brant married would be my boy's mom because that's who they would know. Cameron, I had the hope that he might remember some glimpses of me, but James wouldn't, and I knew that. So I, you know, I just told Brant, like, you just have to make sure whoever you marry loves our boys They'll never be able to love them as much as I love them. But I want whoever you marry to love our boys as if they were her boys. Because they will be. And he would, he said he would get mad every time I bring it up, but I I was just like, no, like, we need to talk about this. Like, this is our reality. I had some friends be like, are you kidding me? Like, no, I wouldn't be like, no, you're going to go (laughs) get fixed now because you're not having kids with anyone else. Like, but I couldn't do that to my husband. I couldn't do that to Brant. I couldn't do that to, to my kids, future like stepmom. Um, I wanted them to live a full life because they deserved it. And I was just lucky enough to be the one to bring them to this earth and to get that you know that portion of their life here on on earth and I was it was my privilege but in my mind it was just it for some reason it was just to be that I wasn't going to be the one to raise them And it was hard, and I hated thinking about it, but yeah, I thought about it a lot. And these hard, hard things were in addition to the ineffective chemo, blocked ducts, enlarged liver, and near-constant vomiting. But then things started to change. Going off the chemo, obviously that was a big change, but it didn't signal that Christy was giving up. It just meant she wanted a different approach. And so her oncologist suggested a different kind of chemo. This was oral, and she could take it at home. They hadn't tried it before because it was mainly for the low-grade variety of cancer, and she had the high-grade. But almost immediately, the change had an effect. The tumors started shrinking. Christy felt her health coming back. She could hold James for longer periods of time. And then she could hold Cameron, too. Her hair started to grow back. It was around October that I started this new new chemotherapy, and... Just life kind of started becoming normal again, and I was feeling good. And every, you know, my scans would just show just shrink after, you know, shrinkage after shrinkage. And 
and we just could not believe what was happening. Well, three months ago, I should actually go back. October of 2017, I got off of this chemo medicine because I'd been on for a year. And they're like, you've been on for a year. You're doing really good. We can take you off chemo. So I went off of chemo. And I still had some cancer cells, you know, cancer in my liver mainly. But we were just kind of treating it that with that. And I would get, I get a monthly hormone injection um, to help target the cancer cells. So we're just continuing with those. Well, three months ago, I get my scan back and it was completely clear. I have no cancer in my body and we don't know if the cancer will come back. There's a very high possibility it will. But even in the year or year and a half, two years that I've had this cancer, so many strides have been made that there are new drugs out on the market. So if it does come back, we have so much hope that we have these other drugs that can help, you know, keep me alive. That's my miracle story of, you know, I'm able to be here. I don't know how long, but I'm able to be here for for a while now, it looks like. Here for a while now. It's hard to think about, hard to contemplate. Here for how long? Christy gets scanned every three months to see if the cancer is back. We talked a bit about how this kind of perspective and time frame can really change the way you live your life. Does it feel like she's living her life in three-month increments? I try not to think about it, and I try to just, you know, live life. Um, and then, you know, the three months will come up and I'm like, okay, it's time for another scan. Let's see, you know, and I, like I was telling Brad, I'm like, I don't think that that anxiety from getting scans will ever go away. I think even if I were on like the one year or the two year, you know, I think every single time it'll just, it'll be the same, just that anxiety of, okay, is this the one, is this the one that's coming back? Just kind of waiting for it to happen. I'm just imagining myself, like I'm a very sort of forward thinking person in a lot of ways. And I think, okay, well, this is what I want. Like I want to get done this weekend and next by next month, I want this done. And in a year I want it to be here and so on and so forth. And do you feel like you had to sort of switch to another language as far as like forward looking and then switch back a couple of times as things have changed for yourself. All right. Yeah, because you said that you guys would, like, talk about a trip and then you'd be like, oh, actually, I don't know about that. Um, like, I heard an advertisement on the radio for a concert coming and after I was diagnosed, and um, they they were selling tickets really far in advance. It's for a Tim, Graw, Tim McGraw and Faith Hill concert. And it was, like, selling almost a year in advance. And I was I'm like, oh, that would be an amazing concert to go to. And I was like, we should go, you know, it's be fun. And I'm like, I doubt I'll be here. I would have those moments where I would think about the future and be like, I probably won't be here. So we'd quickly turn, you know, change subjects and everything. And would you have to, like, remind yourself of that? I would imagine that it would be hard to switch to, like, yeah, let's, let's think about that and then have to continue to remind yourself of, like... Sometimes... Yeah, and sometimes, like, both, like, Brett and I would just, like, would say something, and they would just be silent, and I knew that both of us were thinking, 
if you're around, you know, like if I'm, if I'm still alive, then yeah, that'd be great. But we, we wouldn't say it, but yeah, anytime that anyone would talk about anything in the future, you know, more than, let's say anything more than a month out, I would be like, Oh, maybe, maybe I'll be here. So it's still, I'm still kind of in the transitioning phase back to the thinking about the future. Aside from the perspective of what is the future and how long will it actually be, Christy has had some other perspectives in her life shift as well. Because even someone who has stared death in the face for an entire year, life still looks like the life of anyone with a young family. The frustrations and crying kids and just feeling crazy with it all. But she's able to switch views pretty quickly and see and remember the good things that have developed over the past two years. Like, I should appreciate this more. You know, like, mm-hmm. I'm here. I should appreciate it. And it kind of <laughs> kicks me back into, like, a, a better place. But I think, you know, my friendships mean more. I found out, you know, who some really good friends are through this. And that... I have some, I have amazing people in my life, you know, from all, all different parts of my life, just wonderful, wonderful people that have come out and helped support me that, you know, made me so appreciative to that. It, um, has changed my view on like service and accepting service because that was hard. It was hard to be the one that needed meals brought in multiple times a week and neighbors would come and clean my house and do my laundry for me and it was so hard to give that up that pride of like I'm a mom, I'm a wife, I'm a, you know, like, I should be keeping up the house. I should be doing the laundry. I should be taking care of my kids. And setting aside that pride, that was hard. And it was definitely a lesson I had to learn. Now, you know, when, when someone's like, hey, can I do something to help? I'm like, yeah, I do need this. Like, I do need help in this way still, you know, and it's helped me to allow more people to give me service and to help me out, which I think is, you know, it's a blessing to me. It's a blessing to them to serve and it helps everyone. And having to learn that lesson has definitely changed me. You know, the bond that I, I have with my husband has definitely changed over the past two years so we believe in eternal marriage, that we're married to our spouse, not just for this life, um, but for eternity. And that knowledge, that saved me through like the hardest times and helped me grow and, and become closer to my spouse so much more over the past two years. I grew a lot closer to my family, my brothers and sisters, and my parents, and I relied relied on them for so much. And I'm a very independent person, so I 
I was always the one. Like, I would go out on my own. I lived in New York by myself. I went to Costa Rica by myself um, to do service, and I would do these things all by myself, and I didn't need anyone. But for the past two years, I've needed people. And my relationships are just so much better for that. My friendships, my the love I have for my brothers and sisters and my nieces and nephews and my parents and my in-laws and everyone has just grown so much from it. It it sounds weird, but it has it's been a huge blessing to have that. Like we've seen so many amazing things come from this from this trial. The roller coaster year ended. They made it safely back to the station. There were stomach-churning twists and falls, but also amazing views. Still. They're in the car, on the track. They don't know if or when it will start up again or what the track will look like the second time around. There is some anticipation, but mostly... I try not to think about it, and I try to just kind of live my life, and... You know, it's it's a part of my life now. We we talk about it openly, and you know we'll we'll joke about it. Like I'll joke about it with with Brent and like with our friends and stuff. And it's just it is what it is, and it's just life. And I go to the doctor and I get treated, and you know I get my scan and everything. But every once in a while, it like we'll make a plan for the future, and. In the back of my mind, I'm like, will I be around? Or, you know, or I'm, I'm laying with Cameron or James, and, and I will have a, like, will they remember this when I'm dead? Because, like, I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm going to live a full life still. No one really does. Like, no one knows. I was talking to my sister, and, you know, not too long after I'd been diagnosed and and she's like no one knows if they're going to get hit by a bus tomorrow you know we don't know when our time here on earth is is really up you at least kind of know like you have a year to you know to prepare to do things to to live as full as you can like whether it really is your last year or not like you have that year to really make the best of life and going forward like it really is like I look at things I'm like life's too short not to do things like let's let's go on vacations because who knows it might be our last like whether it's you know, cancer takes my life or some tragedy happens or, you know, no one knows when, when life will really end. So live life, live life as best as you can. What I love so much about Christy and her story was the way she found things to be grateful for in the hardest moments and how she opened herself up to being in need. I love that she didn't shy away from talking to us about the hard, messy parts but that she was also able to forgive herself for whatever weaknesses she may have felt she had while her life was in pieces. Having to face the kinds of questions she faced and thinking of others more than she thought of herself. When she said at the end there that you live your life as best you can, I can see how she did that. Her last year of life did include some fun trips and some great memories made, 
But I think that the way she really lived her life as best she could was with gratitude, compassion, and unselfishness. And I'm grateful she has lived to tell the tale and share her wisdom. Thanks, Christy, for sharing your story. Since we talked to Christy, she's had a couple of more scans. The first showed a spot on her liver, so she went back on chemo. The next scan showed that the liver spot was gone, but that there were a couple of more spots on her pelvic bone and sternum. The doctors say as long as she doesn't have any bone pain, she's okay, but they're still treating it, of course. It's like she's playing whack-a-mole with the cancer. If you would like to donate to Christy's GoFundMe account, it is still active. Search Christy, with a K, Carpenter on GoFundMe, and we'll have a link to it on our website as well. Thanks to all you for listening, for sharing your thoughts with us on Facebook and Instagram, and for leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts. We hope you check out our Patreon page and help us share more stories. Also, thanks to producer Emeritus Ryan Barnhart, to Ben Howell and Ellen Barnhart, and Tyson Shank for our music. And thanks to Micah Heisel, whose triple berry trifle left Mary Berry and Paul Hollywood open-mouthed and, I'm not joking, teary-eyed. I saw the tears. They were real. Cuckoo. 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 C